You are listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. So I'm going to like read a chunk, talk about it, read a chunk, talk about it. It's kind of how we're going through it. Um, So, but before we jump in, let's be good women of the word and let us go through kind of, we did this in our Bible study intensive, but just to give a little bit of refresher, a little bit of question and answer. Um, So let's start with purpose. Where in Exodus, where does it fall in the big story of the Bible? Shout it out. Most of the Bible is in one of these. So. Redemption. Redemption. Yes. Yeah. So we know that in Genesis, God set up his design. And then immediately in chapter three, it's gone. And the rest of the Bible is God bringing the people to himself to dwell with him forever in restoration. Um, so let's move on to perspective. Who wrote the book of Exodus? Moses. Moses, yes. And we know that um, from Acts. Acts quotes that Moses wrote it, and so we take that. Um, we let God's word interpret God's word. Um, when was it written? This is like, I talked about two sticky dates, so they kind of use some different dating based on kind of like the historical narrative. But there's an earlier date and a later date. I think one is in 1226 B.C. and 1460 B.C. I think it's the other one. But... Um, the next question is to whom was it written? So who is the book? What's the audience of the book of Exodus? What? The Israelites. Yes, the Israelites. Who else is the audience? Us. Yes. <laughs> the generations that will um, come after the Israelites that follow Jesus. Um, and then in what style was it written? I already alluded to this. Historical narrative. Yep. And then why was the book of Exodus written? So the people will remember what God has done. Yes. Yes, that the people of Israel could look back and see God's covenant faithfulness, and also that we might look back and see what God has done um, and not doubt um, what he has done. Um, okay, so let's go ahead and jump in. But before we jump into 14, we got to like catch up because we went through chapters 1 through 13 in our uh, Bible study intensive. So bear with me. I'm going to run through all those chapters in like a quick little bit. Okay, so chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus is that Israel is in Egypt in slavery. Joseph has died. So we saw in Genesis, as Genesis ended, that God had raised up Egypt to be the superpower of the world through Joseph. And that he saved his people, right, from a famine. And so that's where we kind of end in Genesis and we move on to Exodus. And so then in the beginning of Exodus, we see that um, Joseph has died. And that the Pharaoh has risen up and forgotten what God had done and forgotten who Joseph was and who his people were. And that now um, he took things into his own hand, being afraid of the Israelites, and that he put them in slavery. Um, And so in chapters 1 and 2, God also raises up Moses. Um, If you remember, we talked about how Moses was the perfect man for the job, not because he was perfect, but because God perfectly rose him up in Hebrew Household, but he also was raised in an Egyptian household, primed to be the person to lead them out of Egypt. Um, also in chapters 1 and 2, um, God hears the cries of his people and begins to make a plan for redeeming them. In chapters 2 and 3, God appears in person to Moses in the burning bush and calls Moses to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. Then in chapter 4, Moses is given signs, and Moses goes to Egypt. 
chapter 5, the opposition against the Israelites from the Egyptians continues, and Moses questions his calling. In chapter 6, the Lord reassures Moses of his call, and then he shows by genealogy who is in Israel. Um, Chapter 7, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, and we begin to see the plagues. In chapter 7, we see plague 1. Chapter 8, we see 2 through 4, frogs, gnats, and flies. Chapter 9 is is plagues 5 through 7, livestock, boils, and hail. And chapter 10 is locusts and darkness. And so, as a reminder, when Moses had those signs, it was foretelling how God would destroy the Egyptian gods by the use of the plagues. And so each of the plagues show destro- destroying of the different gods of Egypt. Chapter 11 is when the final plague is threatened. It doesn't happen yet, but the final plague is threatened. And then chapter 12 um, is the institution of the Passover. Um, and the Passover is a representation of the Passover lamb that Jesus might pass over his people and that there was a sacrifice for their sin. And then we see the final plague, and then we see the exodus. Um, and then in between, right before chapter 14, we see that the Passover is celebrated, conse- uh, consecration of newborns, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then that God begins to guide them out of Egypt by the pillar um, of cloud and fire. And so that brings us all the way to chapter 14. And so here we begin. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Couple things I want to point out here. It says in verse two, in verse two, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp. Interesting. God has asked the people to go back from the way they're going. Right, they're out of they're out of Egypt. They're going out of um, Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. And then God says, turn around and go back. I wonder why God would ask them to do that. So they've gone back, and then it says that Pharaoh said to the people, I don't actually know how he found out where they were, um, but must have had some spies or something, because he says they're wandering in the land, and the wilderness has shut them in. And so we see here that God has put the Israelites in a position that they cannot get out. They are stuck in a place where Pharaoh himself has said they are stuck in a dead end, where they, the wilderness has shut them in. On one side, desert. On the other side, Red Sea. And then if you read the passage, what comes next? The Egyptians on the other side. Where shall they go? So I think this is really interesting to think about how God would purposely ask them in obedience to turn around and go to a place where they are helpless and vulnerable and they cannot get out. Why would God do that? And they did so. They did follow. They followed in obedience. And then in verse 4, it says that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. We talked a little bit about this in our Bible study intensive, that God, and obviously that's a can of worms that we don't have fully time to talk about today, but we talked about how God, in his judgment, Pharaoh's heart, he hardened his heart multiple times, and then God gave him over to that hardened heart. And so here we see his natural consequences, and he's continuing to harden his heart, and that God is allowing that. And it says, he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. 
I want you to make note of the word all, host, and the repeated nature of the Lord's hardening, and also Pharaoh's horses, chariots, his horsemen, and his army. Those are repeated throughout this passage. Those are things that we will come back to. And so it says that the reason God put the Israelites in this place was that he might get glory. That he might get glory. And then we move to the next passage, kind of the first two. This happens a lot in historical narrative. You'll kind of have like summaries. It happens in Genesis 2. The first chapter, first two chapters of Genesis are kind of like summaries of what will come. And then historical narrative will give more detail of what's happening. So you kind of see that in this passage, that the first two sections are pretty short. And then it continues to tell you a little bit more about what happens in that. Um, and so, verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? Pause here. And so, here we see that Pharaoh is realizing the full weight of his decision, right? He's realizing what it actually means that the Israelites are no longer under his control, can you imagine being the ancient superpower and your entire nation is built on the backs of slaves? That's literally what happened. And so now that they're gone, Pharaoh is realizing that his worst nightmare, what he was afraid of in chapter 1 through 4, that, the, that he would be overtaken as a superpower. He thought that it would be because the Israelites were multiplying, were fruitful and multiplying. But now we see that it's actually because of his hardened heart that the that it is falling. Um, and so he's realizing the full weight of what it means to not have a people underneath him. And so he takes it in his hands again, and he says, So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And here it is again. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them all, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them and camped at the sea by high, sorry, by high off in front of Baal Savan. And so those are kind of like the two summaries. And now we get to see what actually happened when they overtook them in the camp. Verse 10. Could I actually have someone look up Psalms 106, 6 through 7 to read for me? Okay, awesome. Thank you. Um, I'll have you read it in just a second. Um, it says, When Pharaoh drew near and the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, they feared greatly. I kind of mentioned this before, but think about yourselves in that spot. Think about a spot when you have been in a corner and there's nowhere that you could go. Like, that's, what, that's where they're at right now. They look to, I don't know which way it was, but they look to the desert on one side, the sea on the other, and the Egyptians coming towards them. And they feared greatly. I would also be super afraid in this moment. Um, and so it says, first, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. I'm glad that's where they first started. At least they cried out to the Lord. You know, that's where they started. But then immediately after it, it says, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not this, what we said in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For we would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This attitude of doubt and a lack of faith 
and discouragement and fear is the same attitude that they had back in our first chapters, right? They were, they didn't want Moses to come and try to free them from slavery because it caused more oppression. And so here we see the Israelites not trusting in what God is going to do, right? They've already seen what God has done. Like, think about that. Like, if you just look back at the first 13 chapters of Exodus, look at what God had done. Like, he had done so much. He had destroyed Egypt, the superpower of the ancient Near East, and they're gone. Um, And so they had forgotten God's faithfulness to them. And so, um, can we read that Psalms first? We have sinned, even as our fathers did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our fathers were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. So this is a psalm of like confession and repentance. And so I think here it's good for us to stop and realize that we are so much like the Israelites. When we get into a rock and a hard place where we look around from side to side and we say, there is nothing that I can do to get out of this. Usually our first move is not to be like, yes, this is an opportunity for the Lord to save us. That's not what they did. They feared and they were scared about their position. And I think that is often how we are when we get stuck in a hard place. And it's interesting, too, that this hard place was sovereignly put there by God in his graciousness. And so I think those are things to think about. So we know that the Israelites first called out to God, but then they responded in sin in doubt and disobedience to what God what they had seen, the prior faithfulness of who God is. Then we move on to verse 13, and it says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. And so here we see... We saw in the first 13 chapters, Moses' journey as a character, right? We saw his character development, really his sanctification as the Lord empowered him. But he went from a scared teacher and spokesperson of God to a confident, humble, faithful leader. So I think we really see his response here as God has brought him up as a strong, confident, faithful leader. Um, There's a couple of commands here that I think we should pause and look at. Fear not. That's the number one most commanded thing in scripture to fear not because God knows that we are a fearful and anxious people and I'm speaking for myself as someone who struggles with anxiety fear not is something that I must do so in situations where we feel like there's no way out let us not respond in doubt and discouragement or fear but let us fear not and remember what God has done two we need to stand firm what does it look like as believers to stand firm Well, in Ephesians 6, it talks about putting on the full armor of God. And in Philippians, I think it's Philippians, God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. And so to stand firm is to know God, to know his word, and to put on the full armor of God that we might stand firm. Then the next one is to be silent or to be still. And so here, and really through this whole passage, we see God as a warrior, God, the Lord of hosts. And so that's why I said keep the word host is an important thing. We see him as our person who brings salvation. He is a warrior on our behalf. He defeats death. He defeats sin. And we'll see that more so as we go out in this passage. So fear not, 
stand firm and be silent and wait for the salvation of the Lord. So when you're in a stuck place, we all know can look back on our salvation and know that there was nothing that we could do, and yet God met us. And so moving on to verse 15, says, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on the dry ground. Here it is again. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. I think the reason why it's repeated so many times is, one, the plagues and everything that he has done from here is because he's trying to establish, Moses is trying to show who God is, that he is a God over the Egyptians, and that the host of the Egyptians, no matter how big their army, are no match for God and his strength. The next section, it says, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and, and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So here we see God's protection continued. In verse 19, it says the angel of God. There's some different... In, when we looked at the angel of the Lord in Exodus 3... We knew that it was God himself who was in the burning bush. This phrase, angel of God, is kind of debated whether it's the general term for God or whether it is his personal name, Yahweh. But whether it's a messenger of God or God himself, what we do know is that he was in the pillar of cloud and the fire protecting his people. And so what's interesting here is that God was in the pillar of cloud and fire protecting his people. The darkness was facing the Egyptians. The light was facing the Israelites. That God turns his back to those that disobey and harden their heart. God turns his face to those that humbly follow him in faith and are his people. And so the darkness stopped the Egyptians from coming anywhere close to the Israelites. And the light of the pillar of the cloud lit up the Red Sea that they might go through. And it hasn't even been opened up yet. So let's keep going. This next section is where it gets really good. (laughs) Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. This is really interesting. This is a lot of language of Genesis. It's a lot of creation language. We see that there was wind and that the waters were divided. It reminds me a lot of what... Genesis account talks about when God was creating the earth. And this word, wind, east wind, is the word, the Hebrew word for spirit or breath. And that's what God used to create. Um, And that it's his spirit that brings life. And so it's interesting that it's through the spirit and through a wind that God divides the waters. Um, And so God is creating a way where there is no way. And what does God do in our salvation? He creates a way where there's no way. What does he do in the dry bones? He creates a way where there's no way. And so, and it's by his spirit. Um, And then it says, And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and a hand and on their left. And so I think 
This is an important piece of this to show that it was a miraculous thing. There was nothing that the Israelites, it wasn't just a natural thing that happened. There was a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other side. Like, it was a miraculous thing. And so, a lot of people will debate, did the Red Sea actually open up? Did it actually happen? Um, And that commentary does a really great job of kind of like pulling out. Um, He basically kind of tongue-in-cheek is like, saying he like quotes I don't remember who it is but he quotes someone and it's basically like well even if they crossed in the marshes where the the water was this deep still a miracle that the Egyptians drowned and so I just like you know like it's no matter what the Red Sea opening up is a miraculous thing and it's something that God did where there was no way out but it had to be God and so um I just really appreciated what he did that when I read it I was like yes (laughs) so um, there is no, there should be no question if this is a miracle from the Lord, just like our salvation. Um, then it says, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. Here it is again, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then in verse 24, and in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And so here, what's really interesting, it says the morning watch. This was the time between 2 and 6 a.m., and this is when most military attacks happen. And we see that is God fighting on behalf of the Israelites. They didn't fight, but God did. God, the Lord of hosts, who defeats Satan's armies, who defeats the Egyptians. And here the Egyptians are realizing just who they're up against. Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. I love that he points out the morning because if you remember the gods of the Egyptians, Ra, the sun god, was their protector and was supposed to come out in the morning to protect them. Mm-hmm. And here again, we see at the morning that God's hand destroyed them. Yeah. And um, then it says, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And so one thing I also wanted to point out here is that water, a lot of times in Scripture, is used as God's judgment. Think about Noah and the flood. God's judgment comes as a flood, and yet he provides an ark that has to go through the waters to the other side to life. And so I want you to think about the picture of the Israelites going from one side of the Red Sea By God's spirit, they can walk on dry land to the other side. And so I think this is meant to help us understand our salvation. There is nothing that we can do that God miraculously makes a plan and miraculously goes about it by his spirit, creating a way where there is no way that there was before. And so I also want to bring up baptism. What is the symbol of baptism? Baptism is going into the judgment and coming back out of the water into new life. And so I think that we can also understand this as the representation and kind of an alluding to the salvation that God brings. That he brings us through the waters of judgment 
and out past to the other side to life. Um, and it's not by anything that we do, but it's that God has accomplished this on our behalf. And so this is where we see God as a warrior, God as um, the Lord of hosts, bringing about his judgment on himself, and he fights for us. We only need to be still. Then in verse 30, it says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of that of the sorry. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. And so it says Egyptian it says Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. I think they include that as a concrete example to show the death that they had just been spared from. They're looking back, seeing the Egyptians and what it looks like to not be on God's side. And they got to look back and see that that's where we could have been, but God brought us to this side. Um, And then we see the same language that we've heard even in the first 13 chapters of Exodus. Um, The people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. And so we see hearing, belief, and then now we'll see worship. Because now at the end of this section, after the Lord has displayed his mighty hand, that he is the Lord of hosts, that he brings deliverance when there is no other way, that our response should be worship. It says, I'm going to read the whole thing, so buckle up. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. This term right here, the Lord of hosts, that man of war, that's where God's name comes in, the Lord of hosts. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow the adversaries. You send out fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, here's an allusion to spirit, to the east wind. The waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deep congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like the lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. This first section of Moses' song really is a, it's talking mainly about the Exodus. They're praising God for what he had done. And now in verse 13, it actually switches to be a song of faith, a prophetic longing of what God will do in the future. Listen, you have led in your steadfast love the people who you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to to your holy abode, which is the promised land. We haven't seen them enter the promised land yet. And so we see that this is beginning to be a song of faith. And isn't that a lot of times what happens to us? We see what God does. We start praising him. And then we have faith that he will do that in the future. Um, And then it continues. The peoples we have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. And now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. 
all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Here we see the nations listed from north to east as the Israelites will continue their journey to the promised land. The peoples of those nations that they will encounter and that one day God will destroy, right, in Joshua, um, and that they will eventually have the land, the promised land. And so these are the nations that God will eventually destroy on behalf of the Israelites. Um, And it says that they have heard and they have begun to tremble. It makes me think of Rahab, that she believed in the God of Israel because she had heard what he had done in the Exodus and heard what he had done in the Red Sea crossing because the peoples have heard and they begin to tremble. Then it says, Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. God purchases us. God saves the Israelites. God saves us. God purchases us on his own righteousness. 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And so I think this is meant to allude not only to the promised land that the Israelites will come to, but our promised land. That one day, according to Revelation 21, if we had time, I would read it, but I need to stop. Um, That one day, the promised land that we will be in will be a promised land that God will wipe away every tear, that we will no longer have any brokenness, and that the Lord, the righteous and holy king, will reign forever and ever. And that that will be our final dwelling place that God has for us. And then in 19, it just continues to summarize what the whole chapter has said. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on the dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess and the sister of Aaron took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So she begins to sing again this song. I feel like it's like almost like an encore. Um, that if it wasn't enough, that the Lord can never be praised enough. And so in this passage, we see so many different things. But we see that the Lord sometimes puts us in a rock and a hard place so that we might know that it is not by our own will or our own power to get out but that God is the one that provides salvation, that he is the one that fights for us, that we must not fear, that we stand firm, and that we be still waiting that the Lord might be our salvation.